Thank you, ushers. Well, if you would please turn in your copies of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be taking a look at verses 7 through 16 today. If you are following along in the hymn book, that's page number 1,000, uh, not the hymn book, the pew Bible. <laughs> it's page number 1,161. 1,161. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Listen carefully, because this is God's word. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave... The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to him one more time because we need his help. I need his help in preaching and we all need his help in understanding and applying. So let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we ask that you would help us to understand this passage of scripture, not just so that we would have another block of knowledge in our heads, of knowledge that puffs up, but of truth that transforms. May it sink deeply into our hearts that we be more committed to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've all heard of the concept of re-gifting something we've been given. Usually, re-gifting is seen as something of an insult to the person that gave the gift. (laughs) Saying that this wasn't quite right, but I think we can find a place where this can go. Something that we either didn't like or already had and giving it on to somebody else. But here, in the gifts that Jesus gives to us, it is okay and in fact encouraged to give the gifts that we have been given to others. Because we get to keep the gift as we give it. That's what we're looking at here in this passage. God is good. He has given to his church not only his son, but he has given gifts so that we might understand and know and love him better. This is a wonderful privilege because we all get to be a part of it. The church is not just me. 
standing up here, and you all come to it. That's not what this passage teaches. But that, in fact, that we all make up the church, that we all have something to do for this church, this capital C church. So we're going to look at how that is possible. Again, we'll see this in our two points, as we usually do. As you can see on the back of your prayer guide, if you want to follow along. First point is that God gives us the gifts that we need. God gives us the gifts that we need. And then the second is that we give these gifts to each other. So, to remind ourselves to where we are, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. He has explained in the first three chapters the basis for the Christian life. That God has loved us, that he raised us up from from the dead, we didn't seek God, that he came and sought us, and that even though we are a people not only at first embittered against God, but embittered against each other, that God has reconciled us both to himself and to each other and is building up this wonderful building called the church that he is satisfied to live in and to dwell in. So now as we come to this second half of this book, we're seeing here in chapter four, the outlining of how this is possible. What does it look like? What does it look like to build a church? What does it look like to be the church? How does it function? Well, that's what we get when we give here to verse 7. That these gifts are given to us. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That each one of us is going to come up more. So really get a hold of that. This is not grace has been given to the pastor. So then he can tell all of you what to do. But the grace has been given to everybody. That there, there are expectations on us all in this passage. Also, one commentator pointed out that this grace that is given, this is the same word that Paul used of the grace that was given to him for his ministry. That grace was shown to a religious terrorist at the time to become an apostle of God. And in the same way, we have been given grace, same grace, to do with what he calls us to do. And then Paul quotes and exegetes, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. From verse 8, he is pulling from Psalm 68. And he says here, says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now what's interesting about this verse is this is a quote from Psalm 68, verse 18, I think. But there is one word that is wrong here in this quote. Instead of he gave gifts to men, the eagle-eyed Bible reader will see in Psalm 68, 18, that that God is receiving gifts from men. What are we supposed to do here? Has Paul made a terribly unfortunate copyist error? Should he have been working on his word processor instead of doing things by hand? Is this a mistake in the Bible and can we all finally close up the book, just hold up shop? Christianity has been disproved. No, of course not. As much as some in the world would like to think that's the case, it's not the case at all. What he is doing here is he's taking a look at the whole thrust of the psalm itself. And he's providing not only a quote, but a little bit of sermon and application, as one of my seminary professors put it, for us. That the whole thrust of the psalm is that God is gracious, merciful, and mighty, conquering all of his enemies for the good of his people. 
And Paul is taking the spirit of that song and helping us to see how this fits with what Jesus has done. And that he has ascended to the heights, he has conquered our spiritual enemies, and is now giving us gifts. And then Paul continues as he goes on in verse 9, when he says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Now, this is another verse that has had a lot of discussion and debate as to what Paul means by this. There are some versions of the Bible, and indeed, if you look back into older versions of even the ESV, it has translated this verse both ways. Is Paul saying is that Christ has descended into the lower regions, that is, the earth itself, or is it the lower regions of the earth? And what does that mean if that's what he's talking about? While in the end, no matter which way this thing goes, there's not a huge amount that is changed one way or the other. Calvin had thought that he was that Paul is simply talking about Jesus' incarnation and we should stop making it so complicated. So I like the practicality of, of Calvin there. But I think what he is referring to here is I think he is referring to the lower regions of the earth, the underworld, the place of the dead. The reason why I think that, probably because I've been influenced by a seminary professor that took me through this book when I was in seminary. But I think when Paul is speaking to a group of people and talks about the lower regions, the people in that culture had thought they had a cave that was nearby their city that was thought to be the entrance to the underworld, or the lower regions as it was called. So I think for Paul to say the lower regions and for them to not think that would have be unlikely. So since we're saying that, then what is he doing down there? Why is Jesus in the lower regions of the earth? I think, actually, 1 Peter answers that. If you'd like to turn along with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. We'll back up to verse 18, which Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. When he is descending into the lower regions of the earth, he is proclaiming his victory. Jesus is not suffering in hell after he's died, because Jesus said it was finished up on the cross, took all of God's penalty there. But I think he's descended into these lower regions to preach his victory. Now, why do I think that this is actually helpful to us to understand? Why did we just walk through all of this rather complicated stuff? Well, I think what this is meant to tell us, as we see later on in verse 10, that he's also ascending into the heavens, that he might fill all in all. I think what this is saying is that Jesus has conquered in every sphere of life that we can imagine. That there is nothing that is outside of God's control and purview. Whether it's the heavens, whether it's the earth, even under the earth, the realm of the dead, nothing is beyond the reach of Jesus. Which means there is nowhere that we can go where Jesus hasn't already been, including death itself. So we're able to face that day when that day does come. Because it will come for all of us if the Lord doesn't return before we do. We're not going anywhere that Jesus hasn't been. 
We're not going anywhere that Jesus hasn't conquered. We're not going anywhere where Jesus will not follow and love us. I think that's what this is talking about. So that he is able to ascend even from there. Coincidentally, I think that's what the Apostles' Creed is getting at there. Whether it's, it's, it's translated hell, probably originally it said Hades, which is the realm of the dead. We can quibble back and forth as to which word to use. But I think that's what the Apostles' Creed is getting at. That is, descending even down into these lower regions to where even hell is not safe from Jesus' victories. He's conquered over evil spirits. There is nowhere where he does not rule. I think that's what this is getting at. So, he who descended is the one who ascended. Who ascended the hill of the Lord, as we saw in Psalm 24. Now, what is he going to do while he's up there? Well, it turns out Jesus is just a very generous God. And he continues to give gifts. So what are those gifts? Let's take a look at them. Here in verse 11. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Four gifts that he has given to the church. Now, this is not the only list of gifts that God has given to his church. In fact, if you would like to see, there are about 20 gifts that he has given to people and has given to the church. And if you want to write, if you want to jot these down and take a look at them this afternoon, there are a few different lists. One is in this passage, of course, and then Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. It's Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Also, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, and then verses 28 through 30. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, and 28 through 30. And then finally, 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 through 11. So, 20 total spiritual gifts that he's given to us. Showing, as commentators point out, that this, since there is... Um, Emphases that various passages have made. This is not an exhaustive list of all the things that he's given to us. But these are things that we can praise him for. So he first mentions the apostles and the prophets. The apostles, of course, those that Jesus has uniquely commissioned to authoritatively proclaim the new covenant to a people. This is not an office that's open anymore. In order to qualify as an apostle, you had to interact with the risen Lord. And only 12 people, 13 people, fit that bill. Paul being one of them. So, Paul is able, as an apostle, to write down the words of God, and we have to obey them. Not because they came from Paul, but because Paul has been overshadowed by the Holy Spirit to give us these things. No one else today gets to write additional things and put it into the Bible. The Bible is not a loose-leaf binder. There's no more additions coming. This is it. This is what we have. So that's the apostles. And then the prophets. And what this is referring is to the New Testament office of the prophet. We've seen them throughout, especially in the book of Acts. You'll see people that God had given messages to to help guide this new church. But do we see those people anymore? Well, no, again. The reason why is we have a completed Bible now. At that time, they didn't have a Bible that they could refer to and and have a sufficient word from. It wasn't finished yet. So they needed guidance as they went along. But we have the finished word now. And it is sufficient for all that we need. Any question that we have for living the Christian life, right here. 
So we don't need the prophets anymore. However, that does not mean that the apostles and prophets don't have something to say to us even today. It's all written here for our learning. They are still being given to us, even if the office is not held by living people. It's been written down in his living word. And that's what we see here. And we can rejoice in that. And then he gives us this next gift, the evangelists. Now, this evangelist, at least in my study of it and the scholars helping me with this, the evangelist seems to be a particular office that has been given of people who are able to proclaim the gospel very well and travel, seem to go from place to place. And we still do see this today. In fact, one of our, uh, a man who used to attend our church here, he's now an ordained minister uh, in, in the Presbyterian church, his name is Paul Golden. He clambers into his RV and he'll just go all over the country. Anybody who will give him a hearing, he will proclaim this gospel. And we praise the Lord for him as he's a gift to our church and a gift to the churches that he speaks in. There are many others that like that that are in our denomination and in our pews today. Now, what this does not mean, however, is we don't get to go, oh, phew, someone's taking care of the evangelism sector. That means I don't have to do it. No, that's not what this means. While you may not travel all over the country spreading the gospel, you've been placed in your work, been placed in your home, been placed in your community, your coffee shop, your hardware store, wherever that is. We're called to give the gospel there. You say, well, I don't do a very good job with it. It's like, that's okay. The Lord, it's the Holy Spirit that does the work, not you. Yes, keep trying to get better at it. The only way to do it is to practice. Keep spreading that gospel. But these evangelists are tremendous gifts to the church. Those that have been willing to leave their world to go to another place and bring the gospel. We are living in the fruit of those people's work who came to the Americas to spread the gospel. Churches all over the world that benefit from these. It is truly a wonderful gift. And then he goes to the next gift, shepherds and teachers, or pastors and teachers, if you prefer the more modern term for this. And this is referring to those, he uses this, there is... Notice there's something different. There's been a definite article in front of all the other ones. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. There's a combined here. They're saying, it's like, well, is this two different offices? Is this pastors and teachers? Or is this pastor teachers? I think what this is referring to, and again, with the help of scholars, looking at this is these offices often overlap. Every pastor teaches, but not every teacher pastors. We have those that teach Sunday school. Even though they are not ordained ministers, they are still teaching those that are needing to hear, needing to learn. Those that are doing our Sunday schools for our, for our children, teachers, gifts. And pastors, those who preach and who are a part of church administration, it's gifts as well. But what are all these people supposed to be doing? These gifts are tremendous privileges. I'm constantly amazed that the Lord would allow me to do what I do. But with this privilege comes an enormous responsibility. What is that responsibility? What am I supposed to be doing? 
Well, you can see my job description. Verse 12 it says, To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, again, this has been something of a controversy, this line here. Some of it is just due to the punctuation of the old King James Version. Still a wonderful version. I love the King James. But there is ambiguity in English. And there was a concern, the way that they had put the commas, as to whether or not that this was to equip the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, and that this was all of the pastor's job description. The guy up in the pulpit, he's the one doing all the ministry work, and the rest of us are here to receive from that good gift. And there are those at some churches that are built in that way. But I don't think this is what this is talking about. The way that the language is working, that there are different prepositions as they're going through here. There's emphasizing this is something else that we're doing. We are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And this doesn't mean that I don't do the work of the ministry either. But that I'm to help you to go about this work of ministry. We're all involved here. It's not just me. It's not just the elders. It's not just the deacons. But it's you as well in the pew. You're called to the work of the ministry as well. What does that look like? Well, let's find out. Let's keep reading. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. What are we doing? We're building up the church. We're all being ministering to one another and bringing in other people from the outside in to be ministered to as well. That's what we're doing. What does building up look like? Does this mean clapping somebody on the shoulder and saying, hang in there, another week? Is that as far as this goes? Uh, No, we actually have a very profound goal here. That we are trying to, in the exercise of the gifts that we have been given, is to help other people be built up in the Lord. That they would become holier. That they would love God more deeply. That we would arrive to mature manhood. This is not elevating masculinity over femininity. But what this is saying is that we are to be strong in what God is doing for us. Someone who is full grown. Do you always want to stay at the same level where you've been in the last few years? Are you content with how Christian you are? It's easy to do, but we shouldn't be. There should be a holy, this is the only place you are allowed to be discontent. Is in how much you are growing in Christ. And that we are to help each other. This is not a solo enterprise. As Pastor Reader often says, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. We're all in this together. We can't do this alone. That's not how God designed it to work. We're a body. To grow in the unity of faith. These doctrines that the Lord has given to us. To maturity. What will this do for us? I'll look at here in verse 14. So that we may no longer be children, little babies, small children, 
that are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What's this saying? Well, this is something of a reality check for a lot of us. And that the world is a dangerous place for a Christian. And I don't mean it here in America physically, because it's not. But what it is dangerous, this is a very spiritually dangerous place to be. Because we are full of distractions. We are full of resources that trick us into believing that we don't need God. We have hordes of psychologists that are ready to blame all of our sins and all of our problems on our moms. We have vast natural resources, in this country specifically, for access to food and power, more so than any other place on the earth. We can begin to think that we're entirely self-sufficient. We don't need God. I need to pray for him to my daily bread. It's right in my fridge that I bought, by the way. This is a very dangerous spiritual place. To say nothing of all the doctrinal error that's taught. We in America can get away with preaching a gospel that says, well, if you come to Jesus, he'll make all of your needs, all of your wants fulfilled. You'll be rich. You'll be healthy. Your children will behave. Your spouse will love you. And life will go great. You can only preach that here in a place of opulence. And miss the central call of a transformed life. It's easy to be blown about by the waves and winds of doctrine here in America. Because these currents are very strong. Because we get, as we hear, we were talking about this in Sunday school earlier, which you know, if you haven't been a part of that, I would really encourage you to be a part of that. This is a world in which we are redefining everything. All these words, love, kindness, gentleness, we all thought had a definition that don't anymore. Man and woman is now up for debate in our culture. And it's easy to get blown about by these winds of doctrine. It's easy when you hear a lie over and over and over and over again that this just becomes part of the background of who you are. This even happened to me. If it's happened to me as a pastor who soaks in this word, I know what happens to you. That's why these gifts are so precious. The word that God has given to us and those that he's given to help explain it. Because we need to look into this. We need to grow. Because the more we grow, the less the wind will blow us around. The more we understand and believe what's here in this text, the less likely we're going to get blown around by an online slogan or a neighbor. To be able to stand firm with what God has given to us. Because it's all out there. Doctrines, human cunnings, craftiness and deceitful schemes. We'll pick up craftiness when we get to Ephesians 6 and see that Satan is working in there too. We would not be blown about by that. So we know what maturity is not. It's not getting blown around. What does it look like? This is where we get into our second point. We give these gifts to each other. We've kind of been covering this as we go. But here in verse 15, what should we be doing? Instead of being blown around by falsehood, instead we should be speaking the truth in love. We need both of those things. Especially in online Christian discourse, it's one or the other. 
needs to be both. Truth and love together. So that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And this is key, verse 16. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, makes the body grow. I skipped a verse here so that we could help keep this connection. That we remember, as we're using these gifts for each other, and we are, any success that we see in that is not from us. Who's in the background? Christ. From whom the whole body makes the body grow. We're always reliant on Jesus. We're always reliant on his power. He doesn't give us these gifts like winding up a clock and then letting it go. But it's continually filling that with power. Continually moving in and through us. So that's why when I'll say, when people come up and say, oh, that was a great sermon. It's like, huh, praise be to Jesus. If you got anything good out of it, it wasn't me. Power's not from here. I am not a source of anything when it comes to spiritual power. It's Jesus. That's where this comes from. I don't get any credit here. The apostles don't get any credit here. It comes from God and God alone. No place for pride, for gifts that we've been given. That said, in verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, The Lord is the one who's behind it all, but he uses means. He uses you. We're trying to stay out of both ditches here. We don't go on the one side and say, it's all up to me. On the other side, it's just like, well, I might as well not do anything. Thank goodness for the providence of God. Excuses laziness. No, it doesn't. It's keeping it in the middle. It was a wonderful sermon that was preached. It was in another seminary. It's out of... Out of John, I think, they're asking John the Baptist if he is the Christ. And John responds, I am not the Christ. And that was the passage chosen for a bunch of seminarians to listen to. And it is true. I am not the Christ. You are not the Christ. But Jesus works through you. He's given you gifts to work through. So use them. What does all this imply? This has given us a lot. What does this mean for you on Monday morning when you leave here today? One implication that I think this passage has for us is that none of us do anything in isolation. We're all part of a body. If you stub your toe, your whole body is aware of it. And in the same way, when one of us commits grievous sin, we're all impacted by it. If you need a motivation for holiness, bear in mind that your conduct impacts other people, even if no one ever knows about it. When we're nursing a secret sin in our heart, we're not as effective in what we're doing. And in the same way, when we are close to the Lord, that impacts other people as well. 
How many of you have ever been able to walk away from, 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 from a conversation with some of the folks, some of these older saints in our church who have not walked away encouraged? Those who have walked with Jesus for 50, 60, 70 years. Who have been transformed by God. Are they not a pleasure to speak to? Do they not motivate you to greater holiness yourself? None of us do anything in isolation. Stay close to the Lord. Feast on his word. Go to him in prayer. Because not only will you be benefited, but everybody who is around you will be benefited as well. Your life has an impact. Now, you may be sitting here and saying, well, I'm at the end of my life. I'm not able to do much of anything. In fact, I'm just lucky to be here today. Most of the time, I can just be in bed. What is it that the Lord can do through me? Well, this is actually something I heard from a podcast recently. A preacher was talking about that the encouragement that we can draw from those who all they can do, there are 103 and all they can do is lie in bed. The fact that they are still faithful to the Lord, that they are not cursing God, even at the end of their life when they cannot see any point to continuing, they do. And they stay close to God. That's an encouragement. That's lighting the way to how to live life all the way to the end. That's a view that most of us, especially in our modern world, don't see anymore. Seeing someone faithful all the way to the end, that's an incredible encouragement. So I don't care how old you are. You can have an impact in this church and in the body of Christ as a whole. What about on the opposite side of the spectrum? Well, I'm a kid. What can I do for the church? So children, listen up. This is for you. What is it that you're able to do? Nothing motivates adults more than seeing children doing what they're supposed to be doing. When we see children memorizing God's word, that's a real motivator for me to memorize God's word. When I see children caring for their siblings, even when they don't want to, that's an encouragement to me to be kind to those that I don't want to be kind to. So kids, you got a lot you can do here. Don't ever let someone tell you you're too young to have an impact. You're not. You're part of this church too. Jesus has something for you to do, even at this age. So stay close to him. Show these adults, show me what we're supposed to do. And that's a tremendous encouragement. What if you're somewhere in the middle? You still have small children at home, or perhaps the children have gone on and trying to decide where it is that you're supposed to fit. If you still have children in your home, equip them. Equip them for the work of the ministry. Take the things that I'm giving to you and you give it to them. The Sunday school teacher is meant to be a supplement to you. But you've got the main task of discipleship for those kids. If you're in the middle part of your life, or if you're retired, then we're at the, that golden point of experience and wisdom and energy. Use it for the Lord. 
Don't go quietly into that good night to adapt a poem. But the Lord's got something for you to do. The Lord can bring a glorious light into your retirement. And that's a beautiful thing. Well, now maybe if you're thinking, it's like, well, you know, I don't even know if I have a gift at all. I mean, I hear that obviously there's something for me to do. Whether I'm young and have energy or I'm old and I have wisdom. There's always something for for me to do, but I, I really don't know where I fit. I don't know if I have a gift at all. Well, then it begins by surrendering to Christ. If you've not put your faith in him and turned from your sins, today is the day to do that. And God promises to give you a gift. I don't know what it is. I got the gift of teaching. Out of nothing special in me. It's a spiritual gift that God gave me. And there are different spiritual gifts all across this room. Some of you are good at administration. Some of you are good at mercy. Some of you are good in teaching as well. You come to Christ, you receive one of those gifts. If you need help figuring out what that is, come make an appointment with me. We can walk through scripture. We can find out what your spiritual gift is. And we can find a place where you can serve. Because we need you. I don't say that because that's what church growth brochures tell me to say. That is not an untrue thing. This is what the Bible says that we need you. We all need to be working here in this church. Not full-time and professional, but all using our gifts for the Lord. This is the call that's on each and every one of your lives to build up what the Lord has called us to do. So be strengthened. Keep going. I read a wonderful book over the weekend going through this book on holiness from J.C. Ryle. He was looking at the story of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Here, Lot has been told, the city is going to be destroyed. You need to get out. And what the scriptures say that Lot did instead of going, ah, and running for the hills, says he lingered. He didn't want to leave. He just kind of wanted to stay. He knew what God was calling him to do, but he just wanted to stay. And J.C. rolled through, what did this mean for the rest of his family? He didn't take the Lord seriously. The rest of the family didn't either. His lingering in one spot proved harmful to everybody else that was around him. And the exhortation that J.C. Ryle pulled from that was, don't linger. Don't stay in one spot. Don't be content to say, it's like, well, I found my lane. I'm holy enough. I'll just stay at this point. Coast to the end. That's not how this works. You don't coast in a race. You run this race. But you do so from the energy that you receive from the Holy Spirit. Being reminded that it is the gospel that empowers you. This is not pull up enough effort, make it happen on your own. But that this is coming every day to Jesus and saying, Lord, you've given me a gift. I don't know how to use it today. I don't feel like using it today. But empower me to use it today. Give me the strength to use it today. And then sit back and watch him work. It won't happen instantly. But you'll see as the weeks, the months, the years go by, 
see ourselves slowly changed more and more, growing like a body does to the full stature of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have spent in your word. Lord, I ask that you would help us to apply this, that the gifts that we have received, that we would use, and that we would never be content to just sit back and watch. So I pray if there are those here who have been sitting on the sidelines, I pray that you would help us get into the game. And for those of us that have been running hard, Lord, I pray that you'd give us energy and that you would help us to run even faster as we run towards you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.